So uh, hopefully this has been enlightening. Maybe you've seen the book of James in a different light than maybe you have seen it or read it before. Maybe some of the questions or some of the uh, comments you may have heard about this letter in maybe certain passages, maybe you were able to gain some clarity as far as what is Scripture actually saying. And so before we get into chapter 4, I want to go ahead and take us through the roadmap as far as how we got to where we are. And so the first thing we looked at is we spent a decent amount of time talking about the background of the book of James. And part of the background is not only when is it happening, where is it happening, but it's also who is it happening to, who is it written to, who are the audience of this letter. Now, whenever you're studying a book of the Bible, you probably want to do a considerable amount of time trying to get some background information because once you understand who it's written to, who it's written from, and what the culture is like, it allows you to gain better insight. It allows you to understand a verse or a passage in its original context because you have to be able to find out how do we apply it to our life today. And as I'm going to show here in a little bit, is if we take a bad understanding of a verse or a passage, it can lead to a bad application and a bad view of Scripture or the character of God. So the first thing we realize is the fact that it's pretty clear that James is writing to Christians, to believers. One of the biggest arguments for that is in chapter 2, verse number 7, where he says, do they not blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called, referencing Christ as Christians. And then in chapter 1, verse 18, he talks about that they were begat by Christ. And so it's talking about a conversion, spiritual experience. And so we got to understand and carry that thought throughout the rest of the letter that he's writing to believers. Second thing we talked about, spent a considerable amount of time, three or four weeks on, I believe, is that Christians, and specifically these, but even in our life today, we're not immune to trials and suffering, persecution. And so we looked at the passage, figured, okay, what does God have to say through James as far as how do we deal with these sufferings? We looked at the difference between a temptation and a trial. Temptation is that evil inclination to do something, and a trial is a situation you're finding yourself in. We looked at the fact that Christians, again, he's writing to Christians, Christians can be a hearer only and not a doer. It really gauges not the genuineness of one's faith, but it gauges the maturity of one's faith. If we're reading scripture and we know what God's word tells us to do and we're not doing it, we're merely a hearer and not a doer. He draws the illustration, the fact of somebody looking in a mirror. If you look in a mirror and then you walk away, you immediately forgot what you just saw. It's the same thing when we're looking into the Word of God and the Holy Spirit's trying to convict us or teach us or equip us, whatever the case is, and we don't apply it to our life practically, we're just a hearer. And James says, don't be a hearer only, but be a doer of the Word of God. We also looked at the fact that Christians, unfortunately, can have a vain religion, a vain religion. James talks about what is pure religion. Pure religion is simply uh, how he encapsulates it. Visit the fatherless and the orphans and the widows and to keep them himself unspotted from the world. So if you want to know what is a, uh, a very uh, good, practical, honoring religion or practice of your faith, it's going to be encapsulated in those three principles, really. And we talked about that. We also talked about the beginning of chapter 2, that Christians aren't supposed to play favorite, show partiality. We looked at this from the fact of their synagogue or their church, I should say. Their church had a, uh, 
a rich person coming in and they would give the best seat in the house to the rich. And for those that were the poor, the lowly, the outcasts, they would have them sit, you know, somewhere else. Be my footstool type deal is what he talks about. And he says, no, we should not be playing favorites or showing partiality just because a rich person might be able to financially take care of you and the congregation more than maybe someone that's not rich should not be playing favorites. And so we talked a little bit about that. And again, remember, he's writing to Christians. So if he's telling certain people that you should not be doing this, then it really points to the fact that those people actually can do that. So you and I as Christians, we can do those things, but it reflects our maturity, not our genuineness. Then James talks about what's known as the judgment seat of Christ. There are some people, some schools of thoughts that believe that the judgment seat of Christ uh, is the same thing as the great white throne judgment. But when you look at the classifications, the characteristics, and even the timings of them, they're two specifically different things. The judgment seat of Christ is something that you and I as Christians, we will stand before Christ and we will give an account to how we served Christ and tried to fulfill the Father's will here on earth. The great white throne judgment is merely a judgment for unbelievers to be cast into the lake of fire. And so we talked about the aspect that you and I will give an account on the day of the Bema Seat Judgment, the Judgment Seat of Christ, one day. Then we spent probably three or four weeks again on one of the most famous passages in the book of James, 14 through 26, of chapter 2, where it talks about that Christians can have a dead faith. We talked about the word dead when it means lifeless or inoperative or useless. He gives the illustration as far as somebody being homeless in need of food, and you just simply pray for them, but you don't give them the things that are useful to them. He says, what point, what profit is your faith? Is your faith helping another person? Again, he's writing to Christians. And so Christians are admonished not to have a dead faith, but to put feet to their faith. Then we were talking about how we shouldn't use our words to tear people down, but to build them up. And then last time we were here back in April, we talked about godly wisdom and contrasting the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. We talked about the difference between knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. The fact that knowledge is knowing stuff, understanding is uh, knowing how to apply it, and then wisdom is practically doing it. So we looked at those aspects as well. And so tonight we're in chapter number four, verses one through three. I'll just read these verses, and then I just want to open up to some questions for a minute. Chapter four, verse number one, James writes, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and ye have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. And so these are the three verses. We're just covering three verses tonight because I want to try to take tonight slow. It'll be kind of surface level, base level information, but I want to open it up right off the bat to all of us. What do you believe is meant, and I'm sure you've heard of this term before, is head knowledge. What do you think head knowledge means? It will... There will be a purpose for this question later. Is that mine or? Okay, I must have drank mine. Ah, thought I had my water, I didn't. So what is head knowledge? Anybody ever heard that term before? Okay. Okay, something you're knowing, but you're not really doing anything with it. Okay, anybody else? 
something you know but you really don't believe. Okay, that's interesting too. All right. Anybody else? Head knowledge? All right, so let's contrast that. What do you believe is meant by heart knowledge? You have head knowledge and, and heart knowledge. You ever heard of those terms before? Something you believe 100%. Okay, anybody else? There's relevance to later on tonight. Okay. I know Wednesday night we typically don't want to talk, and Sunday night's not, you know, must have had a full meal today or something like that, had some naps, whatever the case is. So how I would equate the two, and we'll get back to it, is the fact that head knowledge, like you were saying, is you know stuff. You know stuff. Uh, I, I can know what this pew is made of. I can know all there is to know about this laptop, whatever the case is. Heart knowledge, like you were saying, Jim, I would equate to the fact on, do you believe it? Is it affecting you? Is it affecting change? So does your head knowledge affect your heart knowledge? We'll get into that. So if we define head knowledge based upon something that people know, how can you tell whether or not someone has specific head knowledge? By the way they speak about a subject. So sounds like they're uh, knowledgeable on it, right? Okay. Anybody, anybody like Bible trivia? Or any type of trivia games, Jeopardy, stuff like that. You know, you, you can know a lot of questions and answers on Jeopardy and, and Wheel of Fortune, fill in the blank, which I think is like a ripoff of that Hangman game, you know, where you just fill in the lines. Uh, Bible trivia, that's always fun. So you can really gauge somebody's head knowledge by asking them questions and seeing what they're saying, right? How could you really gauge somebody's heart knowledge? What would you think? Okay, I like that word, feel. You know, ask them how you feel about something. That's one thing I've learned in counseling is, is asking those types of questions that invoke emotion or feeling response. How do you feel about that? How does that make you feel? Okay. Okay, so if you believe in it, it'll naturally come out, you know, passionately through acts, so it, it'll affect uh, what you do, your behavior, huh? And built upon passions, you were saying? Okay. So I look at it like, if head knowledge is basically what you know about a subject or any particular given topic, heart knowledge would be really, do you believe it? Or are you applying it, right? And, and you know, we'll definitely get into that. One thing I want you to understand here in verse number one in chapter number four, is it says, from whence come wars and fightings among you. This was an early Christian church, and they're having fightings and wars among themselves. Now think about this. We talked about this when we went through the background of the, of the letter of uh, James. And if you go back to chapter number 1, uh, verse number 1, we read, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to who? The twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. So these aren't just Christians these are Christians that have been persecuted, have been going through some intense trials and struggles and, and tribulations. And something happened down the road, it says they're having fightings amongst themselves. It's like if there should be one group of people that in the time of need and trouble you can just cling on to, 
Shouldn't be fellow like-minded believers, right? But it's interesting that James brings up this aspect that they're fighting amongst themselves. You see, this is where knowing the audience is very important. Because if we want to figure out who was the you and the your, we would have to figure out, okay, is it believers or unbelievers? Looking at the original audience, James chapter 1, verse number 1, looking at what he caused them as far as brethren, beloved brethren, brethren's 15 times, beloved brethren is three times throughout the entire five chapters. Uh, verse number 18 of chapter 1, they were begat, uh, they were born again. Chapter 2, verse number 7, they were blaspheming the name of Christ, which was their name, Christians. But some people are under the assumption that who James is talking about are unbelievers. Clearly, to some theologies, James is only writing to unbelievers at this point. Here we can see in the MacArthur Study Bible that the passionate desires for worldly pleasures mark unbelievers. And that he says there that unbelievers who are in view here fight unsuccessfully. How would you respond to that? What, what would you think if you were to read that and hear that? You know, would you be like, oh, okay, or... Or how would you be able to speak back and say, no, they're believers because I believe this or that? Thoughts? Okay. See, one thing for me at least specifically is if you were to look at all the pronouns in here and if James is constantly calling them brethren and beloved brethren, we get no indication that pronouns are changing from speaking of believers to unbelievers. There's no indication of that whatsoever. And then... It doesn't make a lot of sense to me if James is writing to Christians who have the Holy Spirit, who through living with the Holy Spirit can change these things. Why would James be admonishing unbelievers to change their actions if they can't do it without the Spirit of God? That doesn't make sense to me either. A lot of this looks like that he is still writing to believers. This entire letter is written to Christian believers that are persecuted. But you have some theologies that push the idea that he's writing to unbelievers. Why? Because in that first underline, because you come to this presupposition that unbelievers cannot be marked or cannot have worldly pleasures or be consumed in that. We'll smash that idea next week when we get to verse number four. But I just wanted to bring that up. There's been no change of pronoun. Like I said, we got very much uh, strong evidence that he's still writing to believers. Even in chapter 3, verse number 9, he says, Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men. So he's saying, he's putting himself in that same pronoun group classification, we. No unbeliever would bless God. So James is still calling them believers and Christians. And so what happens is if we take the view that he's writing to, to unbelievers in this passage or anything, then whenever you and I get to the point in our life where we find ourselves doing some of these things James is telling us not to do, then those theologies tell us, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I need to get resaved. Instead of saying, I'm not abiding in the vine. I'm not abiding in Christ. And that's what's causing me to have this separation and turning into this worldly person, this immature Christian. It really paints a negative view on the character of God and it paints a very poor theological view on Scripture as well. And then when you talk to a lot of uh, people that come out of 
theologies like that. I have a few interviews with people that came out of theologies that held to that view. It affects the psyche. It affects the emotional. It affects the psychological. It affects their view of themselves as well. And that's not the character of God. But the first thing we need to really understand is when we get to this section in chapter 4, he's still talking to believers. And he's still telling these believers, you're warring and fighting amongst yourselves. This should not be so. You see, it's interesting. When we look to these, uh, we're going to look at some, some words as far as what they mean in the original context because in original language. Because in the English, uh, we get one idea in the English word, but then when you look at it in the original language, we find out they're different words actually used. I'll show that here in a minute. And so I think going to the original paints a little clearer of a picture of what James is speaking about. But when he's talking about wars and fightings, in essence, he's really just talking about the wars is like this overall general conflict they're having with one another, and the fightings are like those smaller scale battles within the fight. And so in essence, he's just saying, you guys are fighting amongst yourselves, and you're doing this on a regular basis, and these things shouldn't be so. Jerry. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, no doubt. Yep. No. You're totally right. It can definitely, if it's not checked, it could lead to a split. Yes, it can. And Paul wrote about that. I think he wrote and called out a couple ladies, Eudeus and, and Syntyche, as far as the division that they were causing in the church. And then in the Corinthian church, Paul says, you know, some are saying, I'm of Paul, some I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. And he says, no, it shouldn't be about that. It should be about the unity we have in Christ right there. But yeah, Satan does seek to inflict disunity and discord, especially when the church and the congregation are doing big things for the kingdom. That's when we should expect more attacks and more discord. And so this is what's going on. But what's interesting is, yeah, Jerry. Mm-hmm. Making an impact. Mm-hmm. Mm. I do believe, you know, there are certain times that we should make a stand as far as being in the culture and trying to affect godly principles into an ungodly society and still to be the light of Christ. But when that becomes the only mission and it's not about evangelism, it's not about outreach, it's simply just to push legislation, it, it can definitely become something that's not good. Because ultimately, we got to do all things for what? For the glory of God. So we always have to check that motive. Yeah. Oh, Alcohol's Anonymous? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Nah, keep the main thing the main thing type deal. No. No. Right. No, I definitely see that. 
One thing I want you to see here in verse 1 through 3, as he says here in verse number 1, even of your lusts. Then in verse number 2, he says, you, you lust. And then in verse number 3, he says, to consume it upon your lusts. Three times the word lusts is used. This is where trying to understand the original language can be beneficial. So this is the passage, and if you notice the numbers that are next to each word, they have a letter G and then a four-digit number. Those are called Strong's number. Uh, Strong's was a guy who essentially assigned a number to every single word in, inside of, if you will, like a, a dictionary, a Bible dictionary. And so the G stands for Greek. And so you have the New Testament has G and then the number. And then the Old Testament, you'll see a H for Hebrew and then the number there. So every, le- every word in the Bible will have a Strong's number associated with it. Verse number one and three is G2237. Verse number two is G1937. The fact that the numbers are very far apart from each other reveals the fact that they're actually totally different Greek words. And so where in the English, we have it captured, if you will, by the word lusts, right? It's the same thing with the English word love. Love is such a broad word. We can have brotherly love. We can have passionate love. We can have sacrificial love. We can have all types of different love. Same thing with lust. Lust is a generalized word. In the original language, in the Greek, you didn't just have love. You had agape. You had eros. You had storge. You had phileo. And they spoke about different types of love. The same thing here with lust. We have two different Greek words that are used in this passage for the word lust. You have uh, what's come from where we get our English word hedon or hedonism which hedonism doesn't always have to have any type of sexual connotation. Hedonism is just living a lifestyle that you're just doing and taking in everything that gives you pleasure, right? It could be, uh, you know, I love watching sports all day long, so I'm just watching sports all day. It's about gratifying your flesh, doing what you want to do. The other Greek word that's used only in verse 2 is that word right there, G1937, and it means really to covet, if you will. You really have this passionate desire for something else. And so what we realize is the fact that the different type of lusts, they're warring inside of our body. Now remember, he's writing to Christians. And he's saying, in verse 1, they come from the lusts that war in your members in your body. So if he's writing to Christians, and if you and I are Christians as well, you and I still have the same struggle that inside of us, we struggle with fulfilling our desires, our hedonistic pleasures, or coveting what other people want. We still struggle with that, even though we are saved in Christians. I don't know any Christian that would say that they don't struggle with it. At some point in time, You will. Even Paul mentions it, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But I want to ask a question. Do you think that lust, the coveting, the the really wanting what somebody else has, or the aspect of, I just want to do this because it makes me feel good, does that come from the head or the heart? 
Head, heart, let's hear, let, let's hear reasons. Okay, why head? Well, he just got Gabe's attention. Everything what from your heart comes... Okay. Okay. But we're going to talk about the difference between the head and the heart. And I remember Paul, or the Proverbs 4 says, uh, protect your heart, guard your heart, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. And so, yeah, our brain controls a lot of our actions. Our brains allows us to understand how to think about something or how to react to something. Uh, and then you were saying heart. Why is that? Passion, feeling, and emotion coming from the heart. So if we do believe, let's say it does come from the heart. How can we prevent something from, if it's that improper passion, that covetousness, that evil desire, how do we keep that from getting into our heart? Consciousness. Taking every thought captive to the obediency of Christ. Okay. And you're saying consciousness. Okay, so thoughts is what you're saying, right? Okay. Okay. Okay, talk about the conscience, the little inner dialogue you have with yourself or the conviction of the spirit as well. Okay. All right. Warren, 4.0. Okay, yeah. So, I, I know, uh, spoken from experience, there's been a lot of things that I've done because my heart has drew me to do it. And sometimes I've done that without thinking about why I'm even doing it. And had I thought about it, I probably would never do it. So really it goes back to the question on how do we prevent that? And you're saying, uh, listening to the sensitivity of a conscience or the nudge, nudging of the spirit and taking every thought captive any other thoughts? What would that look like practically? Okay. I thought you were going to say that that are not living their best life now. I was like, <laughs> but no, okay, definitely, yeah. What we got to realize is. Every single one of us are individuals. And every single one of us struggles with some aspect of this lust personally. And so we should really know ourselves and what our vices are. You know, what are some of the lusts or the hedonistic pleasures or uh, the covetousness? I may covet something you, you don't. You may covet something I don't, right? So you really got to know who you are where your shortcomings are. That way you can know, okay, how do I go ahead and change what's in my heart so that it doesn't come outward into actions, if that makes sense. So really paying attention. A lot of times we want to minister to everybody else around us. And that's a great thing to do, to try to minister to people around us. But I find a lot of times it, it means that we neglect to minister to ourselves as well.
And we put ourselves on the back burner so that we could take care of everybody else around us. And if you're in a leadership position at work or wherever the case is, you probably find out that's true. When you have a lot of people underneath you that you're in charge of managing and leading, you care a lot more at work about their needs, how they're taken care of, how they're getting the job done, as opposed to how you're feeling, how you're doing the stress you're under. And so sometimes we got to go ahead and pay attention to our things that really can be our kryptonite and figure out how do we fight back against that. You see, here in verse number two, James says, you lust and you have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and you war, you have not, because you ask not. See, it's interesting, again, just trying to remember the context in which this is written. They're going through trials. They're probably still being persecuted. And how many times are you and I at fault, and obviously them too, instead of going to God and asking for help or going to God and asking for something, we want to try to seek and remedy it ourselves, you know? And so what James is saying here is, you know, instead of going to God to try to get help or try to get an answer to prayer, you're trying to provide for it for yourself. And he says, you have not because you ask not. Now, we can spend a whole lot of time talking about the other phrases, you lust and you have not, you kill and desire to have. Again, when he's talking about that lust there, that lust is that, that, that passionate lust. It's not just this general covetous, it's that passionate. He says, you would even go so far as murder. You know, and I think in this context, he's really thinking about, you know, if you hate your brother, you committed murder in your heart, Jesus said. The fact that if they're warring and fighting against each other, they want this so bad that they're going to hurt one another to try to get what they want to get. James is saying this should not be. He says, number one, you're not getting answers to your prayers because, number one, you're not asking. You're not asking. What do you mean? Uh, it depends on how sensitive we are to the conscience or how sensitive we are to the nudging of the Holy Spirit as well. Because it, it, it's like in, in Isaiah's days, Elijah's days, you know, sometimes God tries to reach us in, in a still small voice. But if we got headphones on, radio blaring, TV up, things like that, we're never going to hear it. And so sometimes we're so committed to our sin or our lifestyle that we're so committed that we can't even hear from God even if we wanted to because we're looking at everything through their lens. But when we get to this particular verse, I, I like what two different people have to say about it. David Guzik says that we might state it as a spiritual law that God does not give unless we ask. If we, are process, if we process little of God or possess little of God in his kingdom, almost certainly we have asked little. And so I think that's a pretty powerful statement there is if we can look around and we can be like, you know, God's not using me, or I haven't seen this answer to prayer or that answer to prayer, and, and we honestly think these are like godly things, maybe it's the fact that we're simply not asking. You know, I, I don't agree with this view, but this one person talked about unanswered prayers, and it was some dream that this individual had that supposedly Jesus took him around somewhere up in heaven, and he went, and there was this closed door, they open up this door. There is a, bu a bunch of like uh, limbs and, and just different objects and possessions. They're like, what is this? And it was like, oh, this is where 
God wanted to give people these things, but they never asked for it. So now it's a storehouse of stuff that nobody asked for that God was wanting to give. And while I discredit, you know, the story that the individual is telling, I think it's a fairly good illustration, if you will, of there may be things that God wants to give. And we're just not asking, you know, and I'm not saying, and you know me, I am not this, God's our ATM, God's our genie, whatever the case is. But I'm saying, according to James, sometimes we have not because we ask not. Another person I liked hearing what he had to say was Spurgeon. Spurgeon said, if you may have everything by asking and nothing without asking, I beg you to see how absolutely vital prayer is, and I beseech you to abound in it. Do you know, brothers, what great things are to be had for the asking? Have you ever thought of it? Does it not stimulate you to pray fervently? All heaven lies before the grasp of the asking man. All the promises of God are rich and inexhaustible, and their fulfillment is to be had by prayer. And so I think that's pretty powerful, too. I think, you know, sometimes if we're not asking for something, God's definitely, I'm not going to say definitely, he's most likely not going to answer any prayer we're not asking for. And so if it's something that's near and dear on your heart, I would just encourage all of us to be praying about it. And I said it before, I'll say it again. I love what Dr. Charles Stanley said, is God will know how much I care about something by how often I pray about it. If it's a one and done prayer, do I really, does it really matter to me if I get that prayer answered or not? Or am I praying for it day after day after day for 22 years, and then it finally get answered? Like that persistent widow going in front of the judge. How persistent are we in prayer? And Leonard Ravenhill. Leonard Ravenhill, I think, would be equivalent to the English Billy Graham. I didn't agree with all his views. But he's got a lot of powerful statements, and one of them is the fact that no man is greater than his prayer life. No one is greater than their prayer life. And so we should be a people of prayer and then people of action. You see in verse number three, James goes on and says, the other reason is you ask and you receive not. Why? Because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. You see, he's telling these early Christian church, you know, they're asking for all the wrong motives. The word consume there is like a financial term. You can see this word used about five times in the New Testament and uh, you remember the, the woman that had an issue of blood for many years, and she spent all she had to try to get it treated. It's the same word that's used there as James is using here. So essentially what James is telling us is that these people are seeking to consume all the prayers that God answers on their lusts. That the reasons why they're praying for certain things isn't to help anybody else but it's to fulfill that desire, that covetousness that they're struggling and they're fighting with. James is saying the other reason why you're not getting what you want is because you're only praying for it so that you can spend it on the lustful desires that you have. So those are the two things that James is trying to get across to them. Again, to Christians. They have not because they ask not. And they have not because they want to go ahead and essentially spend all of God's blessings and providence solely on themselves for selfish desires and selfish gain. I'm not saying that God doesn't bless us and provide for us for us individually, personally. He's done that plenty of times for me and for my family. But if we're doing it, simp we're praying simply to do it 
on some lustful desire, that is an improper motive. And that's one of the reasons why our prayers may be going unanswered. I want to get back to this one phrase, though. Verse number one says that the lusts war in our members or in our body, the lusts. See, Paul spoke about this. Paul spoke about this in Galatians 5.17. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that ye cannot do the things that you would. Remember in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, that which I wish I do not do, I do. And that which I wish I do, I don't. You know, I'm torn between the two. It's the spirit and the flesh that are at odds with each other. And if the apostle Paul had that issue... Sorry, but I am not no Apostle Paul. I am nowhere near his status. If he had that struggle, you and I are going to have that same struggle. And it's something you and I need to be aware of. What are our vices? What are our kryptonites? But it's interesting because Paul doesn't just leave it there for the flesh, lust against the spirit, spirit against the flesh. He gives us the antidote to how to fix that. And it's the verse before where Paul says to walk in the Spirit. You will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He says it absolutely. You will not. It's not you may not. It's not you probably won't. Paul says you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh if you walk in the Spirit. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? You see, that goes back to what Pastor Ken was talking about this morning, about abiding, the Greek word meno, as far as just staying connected with Christ. I look in the fact on, uh, in that Ephesians passage he mentioned this morning, uh, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. To be filled is a Greek word that means to permeate, to saturate everything. Have you ever seen that illustration? I didn't bring it, but... You have like a mason jar, right? And then you put a bunch of big rocks in there, right? You got little air holes, right? And then you put a bunch of little pebbles in there. And it fills up a lot of those holes, right? But then you still have a little bit of empty spaces in there, right? And then you get like some water or some oil. You pour it in it. Then it, it fills up everything. It saturates everything that's inside of there. That's really the idea Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 5, where and instead of being drunk with wine but be filled, be permeated with the Spirit. And here when Paul says in Galatians, Galatians 5 to go ahead and walk in the Spirit, is to try to have a constant walk where we are guided, that we are permeated with the influence of the Holy Spirit in our life. If we can do that, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The problem is, is with this war that's going inside of our bodies on a regular basis, we can't do that perfectly. We fall. We struggle. And I'm glad 1 John 1, 1.9 is in the Bible because 1 John 1, 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from our sins and forgive us from all unrighteousness. But what I'm trying to get us to understand is the fact that there is a way to fight against this struggle of the lust within us. That only you really know what that lust is. And it's to walk in the Spirit, is to be filled with the Spirit. And unfortunately, that's not what most church wants to hear. Most church wants to hear, 
oh, you do this, you do this, you do that. You have, you have this litmus test, this checklist of what to do. Pastor Ken said it, abide. Abide in Christ. If we can learn the principle of abiding in Christ, we can bear that fruit and we can understand what it means to walk in the Spirit and to be filled with the Spirit when we make Jesus Christ the most important relationship in our life. I think that's really the key to it. But see, we don't do that perfectly, so we have this lust that wars in our members. And the struggle is going on on a regular basis with us. So how do we do it? Meditate upon the Word of God. We pray and we apply His Word all by abiding in Christ. You see, and we just talked about that section in chapter 3. The one from all the way four or five months ago in April. Chapter 3, 13 through 18. When he talks about the aspect of knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Practically applying the word of God. And all that comes through abiding. So the key to not have this lust and fighting amongst us as a church family is number one, to know our kryptonite. What are our vices and what are our struggles? To number two, to go ahead and walk in the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, and abide in Christ. You see, I want to end really talking about uh, the, the difference between the brain and, and the heart. You know, we talked about head knowledge, heart knowledge in the beginning. We talked about where does lust come from, this idea, these thoughts. According to Healthline, your brain is like your body's computer. I'm sure we know that processes information interprets sensations and controls behavior or regulates how you think and feel, according to Healthline. Your heart, on the other hand, pumps blood through your body. All right? I'm pretty sure we know all that. So it seems like the brain was created to guide the heart. Because we think of like passions, our desires, and the Bible does talk about, you know, the heart. One of the things, the definitions of the heart is like the seat of emotion, the seat of passion, right? And a lot of that can be controlled by the mind. And that's why Paul says in Romans 12 to renew your mind. When Paul says, like Rebecca had mentioned, as far as taking every thought captive, that's why Paul says in Philippians 4 to think on these things, whatever pure, just, lovely, of good report, things like that. Our brain, our mind can't control what's coming out of our heart. You ever heard the phrase that the difference between heaven and hell is 18 inches? Yeah. It comes from the idea that really it's about 20 to 22 inches is the distance from your brain to your heart. And that's where that saying goes. The, distant, the difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. When we were talking about that earlier. You know, people can know all there is to know about Jesus Christ. I, when I was talking about why theology matters a while back, you can know everything there is to know about these 66 books. You can have a whole lot of head knowledge. You can win every Bible trivia there is under the sun. But if you don't apply it and you don't believe it, it's not benefiting you in a long run. That's where it means there's 18 inches between heaven and hell. Because we can have the head knowledge of heaven and salvation, but if we don't apply it to our heart and truly believe, like Jim had mentioned earlier, as far as heart and belief, we're not going to heaven because it's just head knowledge. That head knowledge has to reach our heart. So it goes like this. So if this is controlled, this can be affected. 
if we can control what we're putting inside of our mind, we can control what is coming out and going into our hearts. If we put in godly information, we can transport godly feelings throughout our life. And that's what Proverbs is saying. Keep your heart, guard your heart, protect your heart, for out of it are the issues of life. And so, when we're going through struggles and trials, one of the things that people tend to do, myself included, is we want to go on the internet and we want to try to find remedies everywhere else except the Bible or except prayer to God. We're trying to get information from a lot of ungodly secular sources too. And so now what's going into our minds and our brain is secular information that could care less about the Word of God. And the more of that that infiltrates here, the more it seeps down into here. And if this is where the lust and the passion come out, what's coming in here goes down here, which causes me to react out here. And so if we can put in good thoughts, meditate on good thoughts, have a good abiding relationship with Christ, it can truly affect our heart and our being. You see, the lustful desires from here, if we don't keep this in check, will create an outworking of poor choices, actions, and behaviors. Because what's happening is we're struggling with this war on a regular basis not unique to this first century Jewish Christians that James is writing to. You and I still battle this 2,000 plus years later. The key is, we can either let lustful feelings influence our thoughts, and now we want to kill. Now we want to go ahead and put somebody else down so that I'm lifted up because of my passion, my hedonistic tendency of I just want whatever makes me happy, whatever gives me pleasure, Right? So if I have that, it's going to affect my thoughts, my thinking, and my reactions. But if I can control what I'm putting inside of my mind, I can guard my heart to make sure that I'm trying to live out godly actions, godly principles, and godly behaviors. You see, in the end with these three verses, and we'll be done early, but... I just want us to get across the fact that, you know, when James is writing, he's writing to Christians, and these Christians can struggle these things. So just because you and I may struggle with something like that, doesn't mean we're not Christians. Doesn't mean we're not genuinely saved. It means that you and I are struggling with the war that's in. And the hardest war to win is the war you don't even know is there. Because it's just going to keep gnawing away at us. And so first, we got to realize the fact that there's this battle, and we got to figure out, what are my struggles where am I struggling with this lust, this tendency, this issue? That way, once we know, we can establish a game plan or at least a prayer for wisdom, like James says in chapter 1, verse number 5, to pray for wisdom, whom God will give to all men liberally. He's talking about being in trials and struggles. Then realize the fact that there are some times we don't have because simply we don't ask. Sometimes there are some things we don't have because we just want to fulfill our hedonistic pleasures and desires. But in the end, we can let our heart control our thoughts or we can let our thoughts control our heart. What we put in here 
will eventually come out through here. And so if all we're bringing in up here is secular, ungodly things, or trying to get pop psychology and things like that, we shouldn't be surprised when we don't see a transformation here. We've got to saturate ourselves, walk in the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, pray, God created me a, a clean heart, allow me to see if there's any evil wicked way inside of me, or thy word have I hid in my heart, why? That I might not sin against thee. The more of this and focus on that we put in here on a regular basis, the more of this will change. The problem is, is we spend too much time dealing with this and everything else under the sun as opposed to our walk with Christ. Then we wonder why there's no change or why we're like these Christians and we're fighting with each other because somewhere we lost the priority We've got this estranged relationship that we've got to seek to get back. You see, next week, we're going to find out, and if you read ahead, you know what I'm talking about. James takes this one step farther. One step farther as far as what he believes these early Christians are doing and how bad they're doing it. And so it's better for us to, as they say, check ourselves before we wreck ourselves, right? So... And like I said, three verses, 50 minutes. Hey, that's pretty good. So that's going to be that for tonight. And close the word of prayer, then I'll go ahead and I'll open it up with any questions, comments, critiques, concerns that you may have. So God, we uh, do pray for this information tonight through the book of James. I pray, Lord, that you just allow us to understand where the victory can be had as far as the struggle that's going inside of us. Allow us to focus more on praying for victory, being filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. Lord, uh, we just pray for your forgiveness when we're living like this. And uh, we have these worldly desires, these hedonistic tendencies, or this covetousness that Satan seeks to bring discord. Just give us the victory, give us the clarity, and just forgive us when we fail you and lift us back up. Thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.